TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Michael Parenti, How I Became an Activist. How does someone change or learn or find the courage to speak out? The Unitarian Fellowship Hall in Berkeley, California, had a speaker series in the early 2000s on how to become an activist. Michael Parenti was one of the best known in that series. Michael Parenti grew up in a poor, working-class Italian community in New York City when he received his Ph.D. in political science from Yale in 1962. He was the success and pride of his family. He risked and ended his academic career when he openly opposed the war on Vietnam. Ultimately, the choice he made then was a good one. Unrestrained by academic conservatism, he was free to write and speak his mind. He devoted himself full-time to writing, public speaking, and political activism. He's the author of 23 books and many more articles. His works have been translated into at least 18 languages. Parenti's writings cover a wide range of subjects, U.S. politics, culture, ideology, political economy, imperialism, fascism, communism, democratic socialism, conservative judicial activism, religion, history, news and entertainment media, technology, environment, sexism, racism, and the wars on Iraq and Yugoslavia. Perhaps his most influential book is Democracy for the Few, a critical analysis of U.S. society, economy, and political institutions. Even though Parenti has retired from public speaking, his vast treasure of writings and analysis shows up in blogs and quotes by other writers, an indication of how timeless his writing is. Michael Parenti is famously known for rarely talking about himself, and this talk about how he became an activist was a rare event. Here's Michael Parenti. When people speak about how they became what they are, they usually refer to a melange of influences and issues. You know, then there was this teacher who did this. Uh, I mean, I'll do the same, but... But I'd like us to keep something in mind, and that is we're not just a mixture of these influences. You bring your own mental labor power, your own emotive concern. You bring your own innate energy and insight to an issue and a cause. And this, this adds to our collective impact and our collective empowerment. People sometimes say to me, they don't ask, they say, they say, your red diaper, right? Your red diaper. You know, I guess assuming you, you hold so fast to these views, you must have got them through your mother's milk, you know. And I say, well, no, I'm not. Uh, my, uh, my consciousness and my activism was arrived at uh, through a very circuitous process, uh, mostly self-education, mostly try undoing my miseducation, and, you know, quite often, the most important dialogue we have is with ourselves. So remember that. It's an interior dialogue, at least, uh, at least on a lot of occasions. 
at least it is for me. Um, we do have evidence of people who have never had an interior dialogue. <laughs> but, but they're all in power right now. <laughs> I, always thought, I always thought that red diaper babies are very lucky. I'll give you two examples of, of red diaper babies that I know. One of them is my son, Christian. The other red diaper baby I know, I think he's red diaper, uh, is Ralph Nader. He says, my father, Ralph Nader's talking now, he says, my father, and I'm saying, hey, Ralph had a father. I just didn't think of him in those terms, but of course he had a father. He said, my father once said to me, Ralph, he said, capitalism doesn't fail because it always has socialism to bail it out. It's a very good insight. Namely, that means that, and you see it happening today, that the corporations have the bailouts of the collective wealth. They get, they get in fact, bailouts. They're called bailouts when they're into a bankruptcy. They get uh, tax write-offs. They get uh, direct subsidies. They get research and development uh, subsidies. They get export subsidies. They get loan guarantees. I mean, you can go on. I, I don't even have the list. So they feed off the collectivity that they're constantly denouncing and saying collectivism, individual initiative. They've got their hands in the public trough right up, right up to their elbows and their necks. Now, in my home, my home was politically, relatively politically impoverished. It was a blue-collar, Italian-American, working-class, low-income. We were really poor. Money was a constant problem and a concern, which itself is a political lesson that one kind of learns in one's gut, really. In this society, not that much in, in your head. I mean, there were some, there were some good knockdown, drag-out fights about Mussolini and the war. I remember those between my uncles and various people. And then there was the depression and the poverty and the fear of that depression. But generally, it was a rather provincial existence. I mean, there was a candy store and the handball court and the backyards and the street. I was a street kid. I lived in the streets. I, I um, learned to fight. There were a lot of fist fights. We used to beat the brains out of each other. So when people ask me, well, how did you get from this, uh, this neighborhood and how did you get all the way up to Yale? I always say, I didn't get all the way up to Yale. I, didn't, I don't think it was an ascent. It was, I got across to Yale, as I put it. I said, but I can sum it up in one word, and that's dogs. That is, my grandfather had a brown dog, and he named him Brownie. My Uncle Nick got a white dog, big fluffy white dog. He named him Whitey. And we got a dog that had spots on it, and everybody called him Spotty. And that was the level of imagination in my family. <laughs> and, that, and that's when I knew I had to get the hell out and go to school. <laughs> the other explanation is, I didn't do it all on my own. How did you do this all on your own? I didn't. The other explanation is that it wasn't self-made. I mean, this society is full of mythologies about self-made man, he's a self-made man. Nobody's self-made. I could never have gotten close to getting any kind of education if there hadn't been, for generations, 
untold numbers of people, like a lot of the people in this room, whose names I don't even know, who fought for the principle of public education. You know, just th I was just three generations back from not only a grade school education, but a public education at the college level. That was the only way I went to college. In fact, I couldn't even go to college at first. I'll get to that in a minute. But what we're saying here, and then even, even pressuring for the stipends and the fellowships at Yale, I couldn't have gone to Yale if I hadn't gotten support from them. So there's two things we've got to keep in mind here. First, in, in anybody's socialization process, there's a self-generated component to all accomplishment. There is a certain thing that the person is doing, synthesizing everything I said before, and, 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 and putting some creative input into, into it. And there are other times when we so focus on the individual accomplishment that we overlook this collective effort and the social context that it takes place. All individual human endeavor is also a collective social endeavor. When I was in high school, I began to get vaguely interested in politics, and I thought of myself as a Republican. I thought that would get a real laugh, but I guess it didn't. Um, and that's because the only thing I read was the, the New York Daily News, which was a Republican right-wing rag, and the New York Journal American, which was a Republican rag. I was very afraid that communism was going to be taking over the whole world. The very first presidential, politics in our house, I guess, was electoral, as it is in most houses. People start giving it attention when an election's coming around. And the first presidential election, I remember, where I really was reading and following it a bit, was the 1948 election between Harry Truman and Tom Dewey. I remember one day my father just saying it was just it was just I and my mother sitting there. He said, he said, Truman's finished. Truman, he's gotten kicked one side down the other. He's falling apart. He'll never get reelected. He's a loser. We might as well vote for Dewey, who's been governor of the state. If we gotta make a change, Dewey isn't so bad. And my mother sort of nodding and all that. And then on election day, she came back from the polls and she took me aside and she said, Michael, she said, she said, don't tell your daddy, but I voted for Truman. And, and I know what it was. You know, everybody predicted that Truman was going to lose and hers was a compassion vote. My mother was very compassionate. She was afraid that maybe nobody in America would vote for Truman. And so she wanted to make sure that Truman got a vote, at least some votes. And so a little while later, I saw my father. I said, Dad, who'd you vote for? And, and he said, hey, uh, I said, I didn't, I didn't know he was on the ballot. Oh, who? <laughs> Pop, who, no, who'd you vote for? He said, hey, the goddamn Republicans, you know, if they get in, it will have another depression. I voted for Truman, but don't tell your mother. <laughs> so, I mean, you give a teenager this kind of weaponry? The very first chance I could at dinner when they were both sitting there, I told the both of them what they were done. And they were, they sort of embarrassed grins and all that sort of thing. So that was my first memory of an election. The, the point I wanted to make there was when Truman got reelected, I found myself, despite all my Republican reading, I found myself feeling very happy about that, that it wasn't Dewey. So that my inchoate class experience was stronger in me than the, the, the crap that I was filling my head with uh, from, the, from the major media which luckily it's not that way anymore because the media is now free and independent and objective. 
I didn't go to college after high school. I graduated a couple of years after that election, and my mother was dying. We had terrible medical expenses. Uh, we didn't have, we never heard of health insurance, and a lot of people today still haven't heard of health insurance. So I went to work. Um, I don't want to go into all those interesting things about work and where and why, but we don't have time. In college, I met students who were, in their own ways, just as provincial as I, but some of them had exposure to music and literature and politics, and I really began to enjoy that. Um, I would go down to the gym on 23rd Street and box, because I, as I say, you know, East Harlem, if you're going to walk the streets with your head up, you had to know how to fight. And here I was in college, and I would go down, and I, I never tried for the team, just sparring, you know. And then after that, I would meet my girlfriend, and we would go to the Irving Burton modern dance thing, and I would, and I would do modern dance with her and other people, and I said, Boy, these are two worlds. I'm not sure I fit in either of them. I don't quite know what's going on. But it was kind of interesting to, to see all these, these kind of new and different things. And to hear some of these kids talk about things, political experiences. So I, by then, I actively supported Adelie Stevenson in 1952. I was a liberal. I worked for the Liberal Party in New York. But I was still an anti-communist. The religion of that was still there. One of the real crucibles in my life was, this, was the civil rights movement. It was one, really one of the great political struggles that moved me, as it did so many other people. I would take nonviolent workshops with CORE, Congress on Racial Equality, and those were interesting experiences for me to actually sit there at a table and someone whacks you across the face or smacks you or hits you with a rolled up newspaper and, and I mean, a whole different way of reacting because you get up swinging in East Harlem and you had to not do that and just sit and, and go like this, and so I can't wait till it's my turn, you know? <laughs> and because uh, we would, you know, change places and roles, and I would check out the whoever hit me the hardest got it back, you know? So you can take the kid out of <laughs> Harlem, but you can't, whatever, et cetera. Now, what motivated me, I didn't know, I didn't know any African-Americans, or I knew a few African, I mean, some acquaintances. I had one African-American buddy in high school, and never, we lost track of each other, though. It wasn't that I had some personal connection. It was a question of justice. It was the injustice of this racism and this separatism and this stuff, the injustice of it. It just, I, I just know then and I know now that the thing I love most, more than beauty or love or happiness, is justice, to see justice in the world. And, and that was the feeling I had. Um, I became and I remained a liberal academic right up until the Vietnam era. I was active. I mean, I, I, by this time, I was an activist. I had gone out on the Woolworths boycotts uh, because they weren't hiring African-American workers and trying to get people turned away. There was a number of things we did. Well, along with the civil rights movement and the anti-McCarthyism, I was right there at the height of McCarthyism, and we did fight all that stuff. Later on was the, the Vietnam War, and that, and that became the other... Uh, impact on me, I began to question the war. And then I began to question the leaders who produced this war. And then I began to question the system that produced these leaders. And that's when you cross the line and you say, what is this about? I demonstrated, I picketed, I, I blocked a draft board. Remember a draft board center in New Haven, Connecticut, and the police grabbed me and pulled me through this hallway. One cop holding me here, one up here. The one holding me here had his club. He said, I'm going to kill you, you dirty communist bastard. I'm going to kill you. 
and the third cop was coming and hitting me in, in the stomach, you know, with his club. And I, and I suddenly appreciated all that training at the boys' club and at the city college downtown. We used to have a medicine ball for boxing, you know, and you slam it into your stomach, toughen up, toughen up. And, uh, and so I would do that every time he hit me. And so it wasn't too bad. Um, but threw us in the paddy wagon, and I said, wow, it's good to really firsthand experience democracy in action. You know? <laughs> During the Kent State days, we had huge demonstrations. You know, people always think, I see all those documentaries on Berkeley or Madison, Wisconsin, or sometimes Columbia. There were schools all over the country where these things were happening. Even some of the same kinds of personalities of the student leaders or faculty leaders, or protesters, whatever else. And the same kind of events, the police and, and this and that. And you couldn't predict it. You know, it was a really remarkable, exciting time. All sorts of people uh, in Urbana. In Urbana, the fraternity guys were having special teachings against the war. The jocks, some of them were. It's a very interesting thing. You can't really predict. There's something about the people where they synthesize and electrify and mobilize each other and begin to do all sorts of things that weren't expected. It was in Champaign-Urbana where my academic career pretty much ended because I got beaten up by the police and we were blocking a driveway um, and I mean badly beaten I was I was hit bloody my whole head covered these these uh, the state troopers had clubs like this that were about that thick and they were coming down and one of them they were up on the side and one of them came right down to hit me right here on the top of the head which would have killed me but someone else another trooper hit me on the side here that tilted my head so his blow hit the corner of my head and I heard this guy in the, in the jail say, if I had gotten a good first clean lick on that guy, he'd be a dead man now. Um, and then I heard a couple of other people standing there in civvy clothing saying, that's Parenti. Now the chancellor will want us to throw the book at him. Let's hit him with everything. Plus, when you're ba that badly beaten, they have to justify the beating by trumped up charges, mob action, uh, felonious assault, blah, blah, blah. And the chancellor who wanted the book thrown at me was Jack Pelterson. When I moved out here to Berkeley, the chancellor at, at Cal here was Jack Pelterson. I said, am I having a recurrent nightmare? What is this about? No. So I was found guilty. They brought in state troopers who said that I had punched out this state trooper who was six foot two. And, uh, um, uh, so I was sentenced to two years in prison. I, what saved me was I got probation. I was already out of the state and teaching at the University of Vermont. There was a big flap there, and I'm not going to go into all the war stories, but there was a constant struggle and a constant fight. And what the system does is they attack ad hominemly. They attack the protesters. So they make the protester the issue rather than the things we're protesting. So to make that whole long story short, I've been kicked out of some of the best universities in America. <laughs> I remember that I was considered a wild man by some of my academic colleagues. He's a wild man. Stop that anarchist agitation there. <laughs> but it really, it wasn't that I was so wild. It was that they were so tame.
I, I realized only in retrospect that I was becoming a Marxist without having read Marx. I would say things like, um, you know, I think a lot of liberals are evading the whole issue of class power. There's class power, and that class power plays a role in foreign policy. You know, I mean, that's what I, I mean, this is really an imperialistic kind of thing we're looking at. And people would say, that's Marx. Whoa, whoa, that's Marx. Or I'd say, you know, I don't think the police are neutral. I, I just, <laughs> we always hear they're neutral, they support the law here and there. I don't think they're neutral at all. You know, you look at strikes, the police are always defending the factory against the factory worker. Why don't they, why don't they favor the factory worker against the factory owners? Whoa, that's Marx. That's Marx, isn't it? And I say, you know, I don't think racism is just a, 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 an attitude that people learn. It's that, too. But I think it's a social force that's used and instigated and mobilized to divide people, to divide the world. And I say, oh, that, that's Marx, isn't it? That's, that's Marx, you know? And I, so I started saying, this guy Marx must really be something. Whoa. <laughs> Here I am knocking myself out to get an analysis, and they're giving him the credit all the time. And he's been dead for how long now? <laughs> well, as I say, I, I was considered a radical. I still am. But I don't think I'm so radical. It's that they're so conservative, all those other people, right? I, what we do know is that there are left, progressive, supposedly literate intellectuals who do not see how much the dominant paradigm has seeped into their political consciousness like so much dry rot. And by the way, it's a constant struggle for all of us. All of us, we live in a political culture that is quite insidious, quite resourceful. It has propaganda, but it's not called propaganda. It has images that are paraded constantly. It has duplicity. And, uh, and so we have to consciously arm ourselves against it. So. I was called a wild man. I was called extremist. Is it extremist? Let me ask you the question. To want peace and social justice. <laughs> you see, I have to guard against it. Some of you have to learn the English language again. The extremists, the extremists are already in power. These guys are not conservatives. They are reactionaries. They are reactionaries. They are consciously, we learned that a conservative, a conservative was someone who resisted change and wanted to keep his privileges and interests intact. A reactionary is someone who wanted to unturn all these things and go back to a yet more retrograde position. These guys are reactionaries. They want to bring us back to 1900. They want to destroy all the gains we made in the social net and human services. They want to conditions of labor, they want to destroy all that. They want everything for themselves. They are ruthless, ruthless reactionaries, and they play for real, uh, you know, and for keeps. In, in 1992, I'm going to end, I'm going to wind it down here. Uh, in 1992, the Committees of Correspondence held a convention here in Berkeley, their founding convention. But it was very interesting because they were putting together a platform of what you know, what the organization would stand for. And somebody got up to the microphone and said, you don't have anything in there about the rights of gays. And I said, we should have something about the rights of gays. And then a woman got up and she said, excuse me, it should be the rights of gays and lesbians. 
I said, oh, right, that's right, Mike. Then a third person, I think he was a guy, he got up and uh, we said, no, it should be, no, it should be gays, lesbians, and bisexuals. And at this point, there's an old trade union lefty sitting behind me. He said it just loud enough for people around him to say, he said, he said yeah, how about putting something in there for the people who are too tired to have sex when they get home from work? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's who I speak for. <laughs> The people who are too tired to have sex when they get home from work. I'm, I'm saying it allegorically. It's, it's the people, it's all of us who are too tired for the way our, our society and our, the good things that we want and our environment have been pulverized. Um, the struggle is between those who want to use the world's land, labor, technology, natural resources, and markets for a capital accumulation process that increasingly enriches the few, as opposed to those who want to use these things for collective betterment, for the well-being of the many. Well, does it make any difference what we do? It makes all the difference in the world. If we did nothing, the reactionaries would have already had us back to 1900 in their program to third-worldize the United States. Unless we resist and keep resisting and build our numbers, they will grind us into the dust. Does it really matter what we think or say? They ignore it anyway. They don't care what we think. Oh, they care all the time. Oh, boy, do they pay attention. Oh, boy, are they watching. They're crafting every statement they make. They're crafting and manipulating and watching all the time. They're surveilling and doing all that. Um, they know that they stand on our shoulders and if we ever give a collective shrug, they will be off. Ultimately, if we can change the minds of masses of people, there will be no armies for the ruling elites. There'll be no taxes. There'll be no instruments of repression. So we've got to keep fighting. I said to you I wouldn't have any Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci quotes, but I'll give you one because you've been such a nice crowd. Gramsci said we must always have a pessimism of the mind, realize how tough and how bad things can be, but an optimism of the will. So let's have an optimism of the will, and thank you so much for your kind attention. <clears throat>
He will turn 90 later this year. TUC Radio has an extensive collection of audio and video recordings, representing over 30 years of work by Michael Paventi. You can hear this program again on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.